Hi everybody, this is Steve Hargadot and it is Tuesday, May 26th, 2009. Michael, I hear you're on the line. Glad to have you there. I just crashed my machine trying to upload Michael's slide deck, so I'm going to propose an alternate solution. But our special guest tonight is Michael Wesch, and the topic is a cultural anthropologist looks at digital technology. Uh, we're really grateful to have KnowledgeWorks as the sponsor of this interview series. Their new 2020 forecast, Creating the Future of Learning, uh, will be discussed at the very close. Barbara Diamond's going to give a brief overview of uh, how Michael's work relates to that. And if you're here in Illuminate for the first time, I get to give you a little overview of how to use this system. That you've come in says a lot. You've accomplished something of significance. If you think that you might like to ask a question using the mic later, you can go up to Tools, Audio, and run the Audio Setup Wizard. That's something you can do right now. Otherwise, you're welcome to leave questions in the chat. I'll try and grab them. I'm still looking for a volunteer who might like to help me collect those. If you're so inclined, just send me a quick message in the chat, and we'll try and gather them together. Um, I'm going to show you how to use the polling system in Illuminate by asking you if this is the first time that you're in an Illuminate session. And if it is, you go up to the green check mark at the top of your screen and you click check. If this is your first time in an Illuminate session, the red X means you've been here before. Just kind of fun to see who's new. Anyway, quite a few of you are new, so congratulations for, for braving the technology. If you'd like to send a message in the chat, you just do so by clicking into the little uh, blank text box that's in the chat portion of your window. Uh, sometimes it's easier to see the chat if you go up to View Layouts and you select the wide layout. Uh, you are able to send private chats to other members of the room, but be aware that the moderators do see all private chats. There are some emoticons at the bottom of your participant box. Therefore, indicating a happy face or clapping. You're welcome to try those out. Or confusion or disagreement. When we get to Q&A, you can also raise your hand, which you do by clicking on the hand with the green up arrow. So this is a map of the world. And I'm going to give you permissions now to place yourself on this map. You do this by actually clicking on the little wand with the red dot that's just to the left of the map, and then you put yourself on the map by clicking on the map. Looks like a fun, diverse crowd tonight. So, uh, Michael, I can hear you moving around. You have a good mic, and you're coming in loud and clear. <laughs> Welcome. Glad to have you here. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. So here's what I'm going to propose. I tried to upload your slide deck, but I think it was large. And yeah. I brought it up in my, uh, on my computer. And I can actually share the desktop. And uh, we can go through those slides. Um, uh, and I can actually give you permission to use my desktop. So okay, I'm going to great. do that right now. And while we're doing so, why don't you tell us uh, a little bit about w what a cultural anthropologist is doing looking at digital technology? Well, I guess the easy answer is that anthropology is the study of all humans in all times and all places. 
and of course digital technology falls into that <laughs> so as so does um, so many other things so uh, it's obviously a, a important part of anthropology today trying to understand where us humans are going with all of this stuff um, the longer version is uh, that I was actually doing research in Papua New Guinea which is very sort of classic anthropology field research and while I was there um, I over the course of nine years watched a culture completely transform under the influence of, of new media uh, but the new media in this case was print and so I, my dissertation was actually studying the impact of print on a indigenous culture uh, and led me to start thinking about the impact of the web on uh, on global culture so that's that's where the shift happened and that's when I started looking at um, new media in global society are you able to see that slideshow and do you have yeah. any control if you try and go over to take control of that um, presentation um, I don't seem to have control of it and I'm trying to give you control and it's not letting me it's also not letting me go into um, it's not letting me go into the actual slideshow. So let's do this. Uh, I will be your lackey, and uh, you right. just tell me to move <laughs> forward on a slide. And I'm sorry that it's not uh, we're not seeing the slides uh, larger than that. I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it it has to do with the desktop sharing. So yeah. uh, let's let's have you start with this first slide. Okay, well, I just wanted to tell everybody about my little class and what we've been doing. It's probably the most experimental class that I've had in terms of, of uh, different approaches to using technology in the classroom. So I thought it would be kind of cool to show you guys what we've been doing. So this is the class here. It's just uh, 15 students. If you can go to the next slide, uh, you'll see that it's it's largely based on a wiki. This is a wet paint wiki at wetpaint.com. And you'll see that this is basically our syllabus. It looks like a syllabus, except it's called a research schedule. And the point of that is that when the students come in the first day, they're actually told uh, this is not a class. This is a research group. And the whole point of the class is actually to develop uh, something that that's really uh, sort of powerful for the for the for the whole world. Um, there's somebody who has their hand raised. Is that something we need to address. Alice, did you want to ask a question or were you just playing around with the uh, the tools there? Oh, okay. I went ahead and put her hand down. Okay. All right. So uh, if you can go to the next slide, you'll see that uh, obviously anybody Get at it. These are actually these slides are actually made for me to control them. So maybe we should abandon the slides <laughs> because I realize I've got 50 slides and I hit them about every 10 seconds. Um, maybe we could just go back to the original plans just to show the websites or give links to the websites, and then sure. we can just actually run a. I'm gonna I'm gonna use another computer to upload them. So why okay. don't I ask you a question in the meantime? We'll turn off okay. the desktop sharing, um, and we'll. Um, give my other computer a chance to kind of get going. Okay, so um, how important do you think uh, what we're going through culturally is from your vantage point of being a cultural anthropologist? 
Say that again? I, I don't think I got oh. the question. Well, how important do you think uh, the current change in media is from the, from oh, yeah. the vantage point of being a cultural anthropologist? Uh, you know, that's, that's a really hard question to, to answer because uh, there's, a, there's a number of ways in which you could answer it. And you could say, well, you know, the changes we're going through right now are not even as significant as the changes, say, that my grandfather would have lived through. I mean, he was born at a time in which, you know, even imagining the possibility of, of personal flight was really, you know, uh, a distant possibility or driving a car. All those things would be really distant possibilities for him when he was first born. And so I, I think we can overestimate the, the um, the, the shift that we're seeing now, but at the same time, there are some dramatic shifts in the way that we connect and in the way that uh, we can collaborate. And so I just think we have to be really specific about what the changes are instead of just assigning like this is the, the biggest change that we've seen ever kind of thing. So you talk about uh, one article that I'll put the link up to uh, is called Anti-Teaching, Confronting the Crisis of Significance. And you talk about the, the role of these technologies with regard to the change in teaching. Do you want to uh, talk a little bit about how maybe they're facilitating this uh, rethinking of education? Yeah. Well, I think uh, here's, here's a way that I've been thinking about it lately is, is thinking about these different sort of levels of teaching, you might say. So at, at a very basic level, I think most teachers come into the classroom thinking about what they're going to teach that day. And that, and that's kind of a, a very sort of ba basic level of teaching. The second level would be something like, then you start approaching, uh, uh, start thinking about the how question. How am I going to teach it? And that's like a slightly higher level of teaching and usually leads to, to better teaching. Instead of focusing on the content, you're focusing on the process. And then at a third level, you could ask an even more important question, which is, why am I doing this? Like, why am I teaching this? Why are the students here? What, what are they here to learn? And so on. And, and that creates, I think, an even better teaching um, method, because then you're reflecting implicitly on the what and the how based on some underlying motivation as a, an important motivation. But then there's a fourth question, and that fourth question would be the who question, which is a really, really deep question, which is who am I, who are they, and how do we relate to each other? And if you use that as your foundation and then move on from there, and, and then, you, then you ask why. So first is who am I, who are my students, and then you ask, um, you know, why are we here and, and what are we up to? Then, you, then you, the next question is how are we going to get where we need to go? And then the last question then is what, what needs to be covered to get there? Uh, that's probably the way things should go, but we've had it upside down. I think the new media shows us that it's been upside down basically by taking out the what question altogether because suddenly the what types of questions, what are you, you going to learn, what are you going um, to memorize, is a lot of those what answers are actually floating around in the room all around us, like through Wi-Fi or whatever. Like they're actually any sort of content questions and recitation types of questions are are available uh, almost instantly through cell phones, laptops, and so on. And so it becomes very clear to us, I think, at that point, anybody in the classroom who's really reflecting on this, it becomes clear that that what's important is not memorization of 
of content, but instead uh, more like you know more uh, more ab ability to analyze and critique that information as well as uh, find that information, share that information, and ultimately create new information and create knowledge by making connections. I think, and, and th therefore, I think the the new media sort of forces us to think about how we can do these higher levels of learning and how we can bring those about in the classroom. So would it be fair to say that your sort of breakout video, uh, and I've just put a link there and, and, and will take us to, um, I'll do a web tour and we can take us to that link. If you're listening to the recording, you won't see it, but you'll see the link in the recording. So uh, would it be fair to say that that video did that for you, that it um, sort of opened your eyes to the possibilities? Yeah, well, I suppose the interesting thing about the video, I think you're probably talking about Web 2.0, the machine is using us. Is that the one? That's the one I meant, yeah. So, yeah, so, I, you know, obviously I'd been thinking about Web 2.0 before the video. Um, but then, I'll just turn the volume down. <laughs> um, I'd, I'd been thinking about Web 2.0 before the video, obviously, and in, in the production of the video, but it, I didn't really get it until the video went viral, and that allowed me to see, see I guess, how Web 2.0 works. And I had like sort of a front row seat to see all these different uh, different pieces coming together. So, so first off, just watching it go viral, I had no idea why it was going viral at first. And then I noticed it had been posted been posted to Dig, and uh, Dig was like my my entry into seeing not just user generated content, but like as a user generated filtering system where people could actually filter content together. Uh, and then I kept tracking the video and saw how it was being posted to Delicious and how that then was being pushed out so to people's RSS feeds through Delicious or through Dig, and how all of these things were connecting in some way to create a user-generated distribution system. And then the video started to get, uh, it started being translated by people all over the world. It was getting, um, it was getting remixed and and uh, it was posted on a site. Um, oh, I forget the name of it now because it actually uh, was bought out and then eliminated. But it was a site where you could actually make comments right on top of the video. And uh, I think it's Mojiti maybe. But it, there, there, you know, like there were all sorts of interesting discussions going on about the content of the video. And so what I discovered, I guess, about Web 2.0 in the aftermath was that was that it just allowed for this global conversation to take place around uh, content of interest to people. And that, that was, I think, the eye-opener for me. Well, so uh, again, this is obviously an abbreviated history. But then if you're looking at the at Michael's, at Mike's channel there, you can see the Web 2.0, the machine is using us. And then to the left of that is a vision of students today. And in my mind, that came afterwards, it looks chronologically like it did. And it sort of represented yeah. then going beyond that to the actual creation of a video with your students. Is that accurate? Right. Yeah. And it actually happened sort of as the Web 2.0 video was going viral. 
um, my students were really excited about it, and they were tracking it with me, and and were really excited about it. And um, we had been studying the culture of the classroom, kind of thinking about what's the structure of the classroom, and and what does it say about education, and how does the structure of the classroom uh, sort of collide with the sort of the structure and ethos of Web 2.0, and so the students started to get a few ideas about this, and then I thought, well, let's open up a Google document and just start, you know, writing out some things about uh, what it's like to be a student today, and and your concerns and your goals and ideals and, and those types of things. And so I just opened up a Google document and invited all 200 students to collaborate on it, and you know, we got about 400 edits, and then. Um, that became like the script for that video, and then uh, you can see there we uploaded the video a couple months after that. It just took like one uh, uh, one class period to shoot the thing, so it's like 75 minutes to shoot it, and then just put it up. and um, And again, like the the richness of it has been in the aftermath. You know, just seeing the conversations that it sparked. Uh, it's been that that's I think the the beauty of of sharing your material freely and openly is that then you can get uh, so many neat conversations built up around it, as well as um, I think it's important also to allow people to remix your work in the same way that any academic work you know we offer for free, and then we we hope that people will cite it. In the world of video, it's kind of a neat thing because people can take your video and remix it to make their own statements, and and there have been some interesting remixes of this as well. So I don't think we can really take the time to, to actually show either of those videos, but we'll certainly recommend that people click on them and keep the link and click and uh, look at them later. Do you want to just briefly describe the other videos that are on this page? Yeah. Um, so let's see. I'll start up in the upper left. That's just a speech I gave. <laughs> um, the next one, an anthropological introduction to YouTube, that actually was a two-year thing that I basically co-produced uh, with my class, uh, with my smaller classes. Uh, and my smaller classes are called digital ethnography. And there's usually 10 students in those classes, 10 to 15 students. And we study digital culture online. And in this case, we were studying YouTube. And we studied YouTube for two semesters over the course of, of two years. And uh, each student produced like their own little five-minute video. And what you'll see in that anthropological introduction to YouTube is basically um, a collection of those student videos with me narrating it and making all the connections between all the different pieces. And um, and so that, that that's what that is. The next one is called A Portal to Media Literacy, which is uh, an overview of how I ran my class in 2007. Um, and it shows how I used, that was the first semester that I used and went to a really sort of blasted the students with Web 2.0 tools. So it was a really radical experiment. We used about every Web 2.0 tool you can imagine, with the exception of Twitter, which had not been around at that time yet. <laughs> um, but we did, we were using uh, a NetVibes uh, page to gather a lot of RSS feeds from student blogs, from uh, uh, delicious, a delicious feed uh, for link sharing. We're actually using Digo, not delicious, because Digo allows you to also leave comments on on 
web pages. Um, a lot of things going on in, in that video that you could you could see how I actually run uh, the classes that I have. The next one is called Twitter and the World Simulation. Uh, the World Simulation is something we started doing several years ago in my large classes, and it was a way to get classes of 200 to 400 students really focusing on the big questions that I wanted them to be focusing on in the large classroom. In, in, in particular, um, I wanted them thinking about, uh, instead of thinking about what's going to be on the test, I wanted them to be thinking about how does the world work and what do we need to know for this test of the world. And, like, and this being generation being the generation that will have to get us out of a number of messes, um, I thought that was an especially important question. So we do this world simulation that actually the students design the rules uh, based on their research into how the world works. So we, we basically just research how the world works, try to create a game or a simulation that will then simulate how the world works, and then all the students play this game over a couple of class periods. We video record it, and then uh, you can see the results there in that video. Uh, in that case, we also use Twitter as sort of a news feed in our simulation so that students could send live updates from around our artificial world that we had created using Twitter. Uh, so a hand just went up. Does somebody have a question that's here? That's me. So uh, oh. is that picture that we're looking at, a couple quick things. One is, I've got your slides up. So after we finish with the okay. videos, we can switch to the slides. There's a little yellow yep. dot next to everybody's name, and that means that they're still the slides were, were graphic intensive, so they're still downloading for a lot of people. But it should catch up. This okay. picture that we're seeing of you in what looks like uh, a rodeo auditorium was yeah. that from the World Simulation? Yes, and that image uh, raises, I think, points out a, a few a few points that should be made. Um, so one is that we always operate on zero budget, and so we just make do with whatever we can use. You know, That includes stuff online, whatever technologies are free and available. And then it also means whatever rooms are available on campus. Um, at a large university, uh, it's not the case that you just have access to every room on campus because there's different departments, and different departments own different rooms, and so on. So sometimes the room you want actually costs money. It might cost you like $200 for the session. I know that sounds kind of <laughs> crazy that a university would charge itself for these things, but in that case, uh, we just didn't have the money to buy the best room on campus, so we thought, well, there's a rodeo arena. Let's just go use the rodeo arena. And it always poses a fun challenge. You know, can you run a class? of 400 students in a rodeo arena. And and we had a lot of fun with that, you know, and I think it's just all about getting the students on board with something they believe in and something they really care about, something they know they're going to learn a lot from. And then there's a sort of a self-organizing process that takes place. And the students, once they've bought in, uh, the amazing thing about having 400 students who have really bought into something is that it's a really powerful um, force, you know, and, and and so we had a great time in the rodeo arena, and um, and, I, and I, yeah, another hand went up. Is that you, Steve? That's <laughs> so me. I'm the only one brave enough to raise my hand at this point. So, uh, how much of the world simulation has been influenced by the uh, social media tools, and how much of it were, were, had you actually had in mind before some of these tools became more prominent for you? Well, again, so the simulation was actually invented five years ago. 
and it was invented at a time that I didn't even know what a wiki was or anything like that. And since then, it's almost like it's hard to imagine doing the world simulation and everything that is involved with it without social media tools. But we did it, and and we we used to do it without any social media at all. Um, and I think the the ethos from the beginning was in line with social media, which was participatory in nature, just trying to get more students participating in in the class and and in what we were up to. And so. I think the ethos was the same, but but social media was not even on my mind really at the time. So um, I'm, I want to make sure that everybody's aware. We have uploaded Michael's slides. The little yellow dot you see next to most of your names means that the the graphics are still loading for you. But Michael, why don't you go ahead and start uh, moving forward on the slides that you would like to? And then what I'd like to propose is that. Um, we go for another 15 or 20 minutes. I have one or two questions, and let's definitely open it up to the group. Because I was occupied getting those slides uploaded, if anybody has uh, seen questions, please uh, let me know when we get to that point, uh, or, or po repost them in the uh, chat if you would. All right. So I'll just run through this pretty quick. Um, so do I have control of it now? OK, yeah. Uh, so basically what you're seeing is how the wiki integrates with the wet, with the wet paint site. So the, this is in my small class now. And this is a class, the same class that produced um, an introduction to YouTube on, on YouTube. Uh, and this is the way we do it. Basically, we, we start with a research schedule that any student can edit. When they edit it, those edits are sort of captured or at least summarized right onto our NetVibes page through an RSS feed. Other things that you can see on the, the NetVibes page, um, to the left, you'll see student blog post. And if I click over, you'll see that it's basically just a Yahoo pipe that's bringing those blog posts into that uh, into NetVibes. And so then you can just click anywhere on these uh, it within NetVibes on, on these titles, and you can see what these students are writing at different times. So each student is, is blogging about twice a week, usually uh, really intent in like uh, good high quality blogs, uh, blog postings. And then over on the right, you can see is our, our Digo feed, uh, which is just a way of sharing links with each other. And you guys all know how this type of thing works. You know that uh, people uh, can bookmark any web page anywhere, uh, add tags to it. And then what's great about Digo, though, is that it also allows you to highlight material on the web. And you can also add notes anywhere on the page. And then all of those notes, uh, basically people can, can con uh, talk back to each other within those notes. And then all of those notes and all the links go right to the NetVibes page. So basically what you're looking at here is our learning management system um, that's entirely free. and is just creates a, a really great platform for us to work from. Now, a lot of uh, people uh, are concerned about the lack of structure in a class like this. And I, I think it's important to note that uh, the reality is, is that this is not an unstructured class. It's a, it's a class that's structured for participation. And so I'll just show you, like, I sort of think of it as a purpose-driven course in the sense that it's starting with the why question, like, why are we doing this? And, what is this really all about? And there are these five stages to it. 
and I'll just point, I'll just take you through briefly what these are and, and what they look like in action. First off, we have an exploration stage. So if I go to the NetVibes page, you can see there's a tab here called Anon Biblio. Uh, that relates to, we were studying anonymity this past semester, anonymity online. And if you look, click on that tab, you'll get a data upload page, like a form. And students were asked to, in the first week of class, they were asked to read five articles and then upload uh, a summary of each of those articles online. And then the summaries were then available for all the students to read. So between 15 students, uh, we ended up having 94 articles read and summarized by the students. And then all the students read all of those summaries. So by the first day of class, instead of each student, or by the, first, by the end of the first week of class, instead of having each student uh, having read, uh, say, one or two introductory articles. Instead, we came to class and collectively had read 94 articles on the topic, which nearly covered the entire uh, literature. It certainly covered the main elements of the literature that, that we would need to have covered. And that created a really uh, great conversation. And then here you can see uh, one of the students uh, was pretty sophisticated about this stuff and actually was able to grab the JSON feed from our from our database and then created his own kind of uh, uh, viewing uh, mechanism for this so that you can click on any of these tags to the right. And if you click on any of the titles on the left, it brings up the summary that the student had done. Um, and then the other thing that we were working on at the same time during this exploration stage is that each of the students was creating their own video. Uh, and the video was sort of a trailer for the project that they were imagining uh, doing. And most of these students had actually never edited a trailer or edited video before. And so this is, an, again, like part of this exploration stage, just getting students familiar with the video editing process, getting them to um, imagine, sort of getting them to think visually instead of just textually, um, which can really open up a lot of doors uh, for the imagination and in the thought process. And then we took all of these at the end of the third week. We took all of the trailers and we just put them end to end, basically, and, and chopped them up a bit, added some theme music, and we created a trailer uh, for our project. And the, the trailer is about five minutes long. And so then by the fourth week, we have a trailer that we're all really excited about. All the students can watch it sort of again and again. And a lot of students would, would watch it again and again. And it, got, it would get them excited about what we were doing. And they could see all the pieces uh, connecting together because everybody had their own little piece within this trailer. And um, that worked out really well. So then the second stage is a guided introduction to the field, which is almost like a traditional class, but packed into three or four weeks. And I'll just show you what it looks like in, on the syllabus here and the research schedule. Basically, it's a series of readings that I've actually selected. And this is where I sort of step in as the expert and I take the stage on stage role. Um, but I only do it for three or four weeks. And it's just as a way of getting some uh, introduction to the grand conversation that these students will be entering into. Um, then the next stage, they jump into self-guided research. And this, uh, th this I don't know if everybody can see this now. It looks like most of you have, do have access to the slides now. Um, 
if you look at this, it doesn't look like a very impressive wiki page. But what I love about this page is that this was actually created on a day that I had an emergency and couldn't be in class. And what happened on the day that I wasn't in class is, is like an hour before class, I had to email everybody and text them and just say, sorry, I can't make it to class. And the great thing was that all the students showed up, had a great discussion, and actually gave themselves assignments. And in particular, uh, the assignments to themselves uh, was to for everybody to summarize what they're doing so that they can synchronize their projects in some way. So they created this wiki page to briefly summarize um, what they're up to and to synchronize their projects. So that's how I knew this was working, that you know all these students were really into it, that they would actually give themselves assignments. Um, and then uh, we move on to the proposal making stage so that the students can get started on their research. So each one of them writes a proposal, posts it online so that other students can see these proposals and comment on them and so on. And then uh, the fun part of this was that we, take all, we took all those proposals and then again, the same way that we did the trailer, we did it with the proposals as well. We took pieces of each of the proposals and created this grand collaborative research proposal that again showed how all the parts were related so that the students could really see how uh, each, each of their parts was related to the others. Then uh, the students gave presentations and I just wanted to mention uh, a nice tool that we used during this time was a, the LiveScribe smart pen. And the nice thing about this pen was that it automatically records the audio from the student presentations. And then I could take notes and the students could then listen to their presentations online. And if you'd click, I don't know if you can see the red dot there, if you were to click on that in the live version of this, it would actually uh, go to straight to the audio point at which I was writing that comment. And this is all searchable as well. It actually reads this text. So, uh, so for example, if, if you did a search for Rousseau, because we, we had a, a little discussion about Rousseau during the midst of this, it would actually come uh, to this point here in the middle of the screen and it would highlight the word Rousseau and it would start playing back the audio from that moment. And so that we found that was a really great tool during our discussions because then we could play back those discussions and, and, um, and it basically the, the note taking works as almost like a time coding. Then the students then work on publishing a research paper. Um, great thing about the web today is that every, all of us have, you know, a, the printing press right here on our desktop, so they all publish their research right out to on the web. And so here's an example of these papers that are being published. And then uh, we take it a step further, uh, again, because this is a collaborative project, and we do what we call a CAHOY. Uh, CAHOY is, stands for knock your head off idea. And each of the students has to think about where their project has gone, where it's taken them, and they have to think about their their core idea of it, that what is the knock your head off idea. And so they take this knock your head off idea, we made a little wiki page so that each student could post their knock your head off idea, and then students could sort of relate them to each other and so on. And then we, based on that, once we sort of captured the essence of what we were all trying to do, then we actually tried to create a paper together. And each of the students would take roughly three paragraphs and that sort of the three paragraphs that express their knock your head off idea. And then we, we started to collaboratively create this paper, which is still a work in progress, even though the semester is over, we're, um, there's still a lot of work to be done. But you can see it's a pretty intense 
editing process and all the students are sort of talking back and forth and editing one another and so on. But in terms of uh, uh, learning by doing, this, is, this was a really fantastic exercise because you had students um, you know, critiquing each other and, and working together. They were assessing each other for the purpose of, of just getting it right and doing a better job rather than just trying to get a grade. So that was a great piece of that. Um, so is that Robert who just raised his hand? And I wonder uh, to what extent you, you scaffold these types of activities using Google Docs and NetVibes and the, the various tools? Uh, and well, uh, by scaffolding, um, there's a couple of ways I could think of the ways that I'm doing that. I mean, uh, on the one hand, there's just a an element of looking for the right tool at the right time, right? So the um, the wiki is great for creating an interlinked but separate pieces. Um, the Google Doc is better for sort of live live uh, editing and so on. Um, but there's also the element of scaffolding in terms of, of um, one thing building to another and so on. And so you can't get to step five before you've done step one. And, and, and I, I can show you some of that is just sort of the building of the knock your head off idea. And then, and then we work on the paper after they've done that. Uh, is that getting to your question or is there another piece of that? We've got three thanks, other hands here. Three other hands here. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> uh, open it up. But, um, thanks, Michael. Um, I was thinking more in terms of, um, is there a, do you find there's a need to explain how to use these different um, Web 2 types oh, of tools? Oh. Yeah, uh, well, that's, a, that's a great question. Um, I, I, I go about this in, um, in a way that I think is controversial in some ways. I actually just expect students to figure it out. <laughs> That's part of the learning process. Um, I definitely spend a little bit of time with students in class just making sure they get the basics and so on. But for the most part, students um, just know that the standards are very high, that there's no excuse for, there's no, there's no point in telling me like I couldn't figure out the technology. That's not a valid excuse. And so what happens is students, there's a certain element of panic involved that the students actually start sort of working with each other and figuring this stuff out. And really, as we all know, the only way to learn these tools is to play with them and, and sort of and just sort of figure them out yourself. Um, the other element of the Web 2.0 tools is that they are specifically designed to be sort of ready ready to be used. And we know that's not completely true, but certainly the barrier the barrier to entry is very low. So I haven't had too much trouble uh, with getting students to to use these things. Michael, this is Keith. Is a part of that that you're um, um, you're actually addressing the significance issue, meaning they're playing a significant role, yeah. so they're much more motivated. Yeah, I think that is the the core of it. It's just it all has to start with that, and that the students recognize it as important and significant from the beginning because they've actually helped to build the class itself. And I think giving students some ownership over what you're trying to do. Uh, helps out quite a bit in that regard. So we have about 20 minutes to go. Do you, it looks like there are two hands up. Do you want to take a couple more questions? Yeah, and I only have, I'm almost done with the slides, so we might as well take the questions now and then I'll finish up.
Bruick J23, I've just given you the mic. To turn your mic on, you click on the uh, mic picture in the audio window. Uh, hi, Steve and Michael. Thanks for the time. Uh, this is Jeremy Bruick from the University of Akron. And I guess my question is uh, about assessment. I heard you say that your students were assessing each other during this, but I'm wondering what role does assessment play in the things that you're doing in your classes? And then how do these new media literacies uh, play into how you decide you're going to assess your students? And I guess I'm just wondering, do you give traditional grades, or is it based <laughs> on effort? Yeah. Well, there are, there are um, traditional grades. Um, but I, I look at that, uh, I try to separate out two pieces of this. And one is evaluation, and the other is assessment. And so evaluation is the part where the traditional grades are assessed and uh, are given. Uh, the assessment, I think of as more an ongoing process uh, where the students are constantly getting feedback about what they're doing and where they're at. And one of the great ways of running a class, like the way that we did it this past semester, was that what I discovered was that the students, basically every class period was just full of assessment. Like we'd come into the classroom and students were immediately talking about how they could do better how, how and actually directly assessing um, different students at different times. Sometimes we just watch a video and, and assess the, you know, a video by a student. We'd assess the video or we'd read um, a segment from a paper from a student and assess the ideas and think about where it was going. So it was just always about assessment. But then there is this evaluation component. And the evaluation component, I think, um, what can be counterproductive if it's ran the wrong way. So what we did um, was we were basically always in dialogue about how we should run the evaluation. And the way we decided to do it was uh, we gave quite a lot of points, actually. A, a substantial proportion of those points were simply for being on time and being complete in what you were doing. Because it was a collaborative project, there were times in which it was most important that the students just got like a real substantial piece in. It couldn't be just fluff, but they had to get get it in in time because otherwise uh, the whole project would fall apart. You can imagine what it's like to put together uh, a video together. Obviously, you need all the pieces before you can put that video together. So timing was very important. So we decided to emphasize that. But then um, there was also a lot of discussion about what makes a good video, uh, what makes a good paper, who are we writing for, why are we writing this, the types of discussions you'd want to see happen. The only thing I regret is that we never sat down and just wrote out a rubric that could go on beyond this class. I think the rubrics we were using were very specific for this class. And if I could do it again, I think that I would have a, probably a week of discussions with the class thinking about what makes a good video in the abstract and starting to try to think about how we could create a rubric for assessing video in the abstract. But of course, that's very challenging to do. But I, I wish we had at least had that conversation. And a whole bunch more questions came up. Shall we keep going? Yeah, should we go to Aaron? Aaron, I've given you the mic. Do you know how to turn yourself on there? Just click the mic. There you go. Yeah, 
Um, hi, Mike. Um, I have just a few questions. One, I see that you started with a video, but you're ending with a paper in the knock your head off idea. And I'm wondering if there was a reason why you chose to um, to just end with a textual paper and not allow your students to use media that they're most comfortable with expressing their ideas, so that it would uh, be a multimedia presentation. Yeah, well, I'll finish the slideshow here then, because actually this is only the tenth week of the semester when they do the paper, okay. and it's a 15 or 16 week paper, uh, semester. And the reason why they do the paper in the tenth week is so they've really like worked out some analytical ideas about what they're trying to do. I found that in the past when I just let them produce a video, they often focus too much on just uh, sort of the form and not the content. And the form is, of course, very important to focus on, but uh, they, they end up with videos that are very pretty but don't say much. And so this time I wanted them to really have a message. That's why they had to do the knock your head off idea and develop the paper. And then you can see here this next slide, what we did from that is we created a core logical argument. So again, like really getting the content down, like what are, our, what are the big ideas we're trying to express? And this, uh, I can't uh, scroll down here, but it goes down to like 27 points, some really uh, uh, big points to be made. And then from there, the students work on the video or website and so on. And here you can see a oh, list okay. of, uh, of some of the videos that are posted on YouTube. And I, I think if you, if you go to my YouTube page, uh, there's a playlist and you can watch some of these videos. Um, Steve, can I ask another question? Oh, just because it's you, Aaron. One more. <laughs> I've, I've actually, like, I've actually been following your work with your students on Anonymous, and it's some things that we're actually working on too. And I'm wondering, what are some of the findings you've uh, come about in the outcome that we should be expecting with this project? Oh gosh. <laughs> well, you could watch some of the videos that we did uh, to see some of the pieces. I think that, uh, or uh, if you look at our core logical argument, uh, it really sort of captures, I think, a lot of our conclusions. Um, they're uh, pretty diverse and complex because we had 15 different students working on 15 different pieces. And in fact, uh, it w we only had a handful of students actually working on anonymous, the group anonymous. And the rest were working on anonymity in the abstract kind of thing. So um, I think uh, in terms of results of this, we've got the videos that you can see there on YouTube. There's, uh, there's now 13 of those published. Um, and I'm going to be taking those and doing the same thing that I did with the, the YouTube videos when our students were studying YouTube and trying to create basically a documentary out of that. It might, um, I'm doing a talk at the Personal Democracy Forum in, uh, July, in late June or July, early July. And I might use that forum as a place to bring together all the ideas for the big presentation. But I'd like to see your work as well. So if, if you can send me a link after uh, after the show, I, I'd love to see what you guys are up to. Okay, so let me go on to Lauren. Michael, is it okay if I give Lauren the mic? Yeah, 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 yeah.
I don't like we could hear you for a second, Lauren, but I'm not hearing anything come through. Please feel free to put your question in the chat if you'd like. It does look like you're typing. While we're waiting, I'm going to give the mic to Kim, and we'll come back to you, Lauren. This question is up. Do you want to take that first? Oh, so, is it up? Oh, here it is. So, here it is. Michael, she asks, have you Michael, seen asks, measured difference seen in, measured student difference learning, in student so learning, learning so the end result retention or understanding? Retention or understanding. Uh, I was hearing an echo uh, there. I was hearing an echo there. Hear I didn't hear it. Okay, oh, can okay. we turn oh, okay. your mic off just for a second? Okay, so Lauren's question is, um, have you seen or measured difference in student learning? Um, so the end result, retention or understanding. Um, so is this a question of, I was, I'm guessing this is a question about sort of the end outcome, not in, not in learning styles, but in terms of, of what the result is. I, I would say that, um, so focusing not just on understanding, but I suppose what the levels that we're looking at are, you know, certainly not anything to do with uh, retention, although retention uh, has been, we have tested retention uh, to be fairly high in this class. But uh, I think more importantly, what we're trying to do is build a scale from, let's say, all the way from understanding uh, then to sort of analyzing and critiquing, and then I think ultimately beyond that is is creating. And I think that creating in any substantial way automatically, uh, the students of course have to have understanding and some some analysis and criticism built in. So creating creation to me is actually a higher level of an expression of learning than than understanding or critical thinking. So, you know, I hear a lot of buzz about critical thinking and I always think, you know, creative thinking is actually a step above that because creative thinking actually encompasses critical thinking if it's done well. But but part of the measure of a good creation is actually measuring whether or not critical thinking has taken place and whether understanding has taken place and so on. So that's what we're looking for. Now the the issue as to whether or not it works better than another method or another class, I actually don't have the research on it because I've always, you know, ran the class based on this idea that to, to do it through creation. So I actually don't have like the hard data on that. Kim, do you want to go ahead and ask your question? If you do, you need to click down on the mic again to start your mic up. I love the birds in the background, Michael. Way here all I by love myself. The birds in the background, Michael. <laughs> How's that? Okay. Can you hear me now? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, basically, I was wondering to what degree, if any, you've, you've incorporated Harrison Owens' open space technology in terms of how you're structuring your class. And then connected with that is how you navigate the tension between accountability to outcomes with the student design and creation of the class. 
Well, well I'm, I'm back. I'm actually, actually, oh, can you turn off your mic? Because I'm getting a. Okay, yeah, I've actually never heard of um, of open space, so I'm. I just <laughs> looked it up. Um, so it'd be interesting to see, uh, you know, whether or not we're accidentally um, copying that in any way or emulating that. Um, what was the second part of your question? Tim, you have to turn your mic back on again. All right. How you manage the um, tension between accountability for outcomes with the students designing and creating ownership for the class? Okay. So, uh, are you thinking about tension with, uh, say, with the broader curriculum? And, and I, I guess that what I could mention is like there is a or can be a tension. Um, say between the student learning outcomes that are dictated by the university or by um, my department and then the student learning outcomes that the students um, are sort of helping to design and so on. Uh, that's where it's just a matter of I, I think just it, it's sort of where you as the teacher become have to kind of use the, the leadership skills of trying to relate the two and making making them making it evident how they relate together. Uh, sometimes that means you know sort of guiding your students in a way to uh, uh, not to sort of force them into sharing the same goals as the university, but to help them recognize that these might be uh, reasonable goals and so on. And usually the goals, in my case, the student learning outcomes are so broad at a university level, which, and they're things like students should, um, you know, get skills in critical thinking and and uh, understand diversity, things like that. They're so broad that that there really isn't a lot of tension there. Whatever students come up with ultimately fit in in some way. Michael, I have a question for you in regards to feedback from uh, your university, whether you received any positive or negative feedback from both fellow uh, staff members and from students who either want to join your class because they heard what you were doing or want to leave your class because it was just too much for them, um, and whether or not any fellow staff members from the university want to come into your class and, and see what you're doing as a way of modeling it uh, for them, what they could do as well. Yeah, in general, I've gotten really good feedback at all levels um, from from peers, from administrators, uh, from everybody, all the way from the president down. Always received uh, really great support and and uh, good feedback. I think in the beginning, I'd say my first semester, uh, there were a few sort of. Um, people kind of raising an eyebrow. Uh, but even my department head at that time uh, really just, you know, s stepped in and had a lot of trust in what I was doing and just and supported it all. And so that I've always had that that support there. And um, in terms of, you know, student feedback has always been good as well. You know, it's always uh, I don't know. It's it's. I, I just say it's it's always been very positive, and 
and, and constructive. So there's never been sort of a sort of a blowout moment where it was like my my way versus another way. It's always been collaborative, and and I think a large part of that is not just how people look on me, but also uh, how I look on others. Like I I don't actually look at contrary to what people might think. I don't look at sort of the standard lecture class and immediately think this is a bad way to run a class. It, it turns out that some lecture classes are actually really good. <laughs> I actually uh, know some of the professors on campus who are running really spectacular classes and they're based entirely on lecture. Um, but they do it in a way that is creating a sort of I like to think of it as like an intellectual throwdown in the mind of the students. You know, like they go into class and I think it's just like a basic lecture, but then the the conversation starts to roll through their head and and uh, sort of an inner dialogue is struck up, and then the students end up talking about that stuff outside of class. So a great lecture can actually inspire participation as well because students take it with them as they leave the classroom and they start talking about it outside the classroom. So that's just to point out that it's not always um, such a bad thing to have these different modes being represented. So Some Michael, other we've only got up. a couple of minutes left. Well, I want to interrupt just for a second. We've got about three minutes left. Um, but part of what I've heard you answer before to that question that I didn't hear tonight is that you have a little bit of, uh, of a bank account since you, didn't you attend Kansas State as well yourself? Yeah, yep. Yeah, so having attended Kansas State, um, I know that what Kansas State is like from the student perspective. And that's actually been really useful in formulating a lot of the ideas I have about how to teach to these students is that I was one of these students as well. And I was actually a very typical Kansas State student, having grown up in a small town near Manhattan, uh, Manhattan, Kansas. <laughs> and uh, Manhattan, Kansas was like the um, the hub of our of our small town, like when you needed to go buy school school clothes or something like that, you had to go to Manhattan. And uh, so so I think that's been really useful for me. Just I have like this insider view of what it's like to be a student here. So Michael, I want to be sensitive to your time. I know we have some unanswered questions. I'm, I'm going to encourage you to put them in the chat, uh, those of you who still have questions, or to actually put them in the conversation at the futureofeducation.com page for this session. Um, I want, I'm going to put the link in to the survey for tonight's session. I'll also put it up in a web window. And Michael, if I could ask you not to close this window, you'll be tempted to. But because you're the <laughs> moderator, we'll close it for everybody else who's there. Um, uh, are, do you have any final words, anything that you'd like to say um, before we um, before we let you go? Hmm. I, I don't think I do, but I'm, I'm happy to take a couple more questions live here. I've got a, a few minutes. Well, that's a generous offer. Okay, um, there is one, one quote I wanted to read uh, that was particularly profound for me. You wrote in, um, in, in this article uh, in Academic Commons, we begin to recognize the importance of the form of learning over the content of learning. It isn't that content is not important, it's simply that it must not take precedence over form. Has that guided a lot of what you've done? Yeah, definitely. I think that the key is, you know, starting to pay attention to what students do and that recognizing that what they're doing is, is in part what they're learning or even mostly what they're learning. So if they are, if the primary thing that they do in your course 
is memorize information, then regardless of what that information is, what they're learning to do is memorize information. Um, if, if what they're doing in your course is, you know, producing uh, papers or videos that may reach millions of people, you know, they're, that's what they're learning to do. They're actually learning how to communicate to a, a public about uh, the things that are important to them. And, I, and so that's why I design classes like this, is that I think that's a much more important skill than, uh, say, learning to memorize a bunch of facts, which again is not to say that memorization is not important, that content is not important, it's just that um, there are higher levels of learning that we need to be focusing on. I think that's that's from the article that uh, is titled From Knowledgeable to Knowledge Able, which I think captures what I'm trying to do so well. It's just trying to move students from being knowledgeable, which is basically knowing a bunch of stuff, to being knowledge able, that is able to actually uh, find, analyze, uh, critique and create knowledge. We I mean, know that people have to leave, and if you do, please feel free to go. But Michael's offering to stay on for a couple more minutes. Suzanne, I'm giving you the mic. Please feel free to click on your mic button to turn your audio on. Hi, thanks for taking my question. Um, it's yeah. actually very simple and quick. Um, when you were speaking before about the rubrics that you created for the class, um, I understand that they're very customized and very particular to your class, but I was wondering if you'd be willing to share those. Uh, let me see if I if we have those down anywhere. Um, I don't know that we actually. Michael, I can put them on the web page later. Okay, I'll see if I can track them down. Uh, a lot of that was created, and I, again, this is part of the sort of the thing that I regret in the class is that a lot of those were created in a very informal way, you know, so it would be like an assignment would be due in two days and before it was due we'd talk about, you know, what what's going to make this assignment good, like, if, you know, what will make you successful in this assignment. So a lot of these assignments, we did probably 30 assignments because we did an assignment basically between each class period and a lot of those we did not, you know, formally write down what the rubric would be. We just discussed it in class and then students went off with that knowledge sort of immediately at hand. So again, it's like one of those should have <laughs> should have done this kind of thing, but we don't have uh, the rubrics written out. Andrew, I've given you the mic. Can you all hear me? No? Yeah. Hello? Yeah. Okay, great. Um, I'll try to be as quick as possible. Um, my question for you, Michael, and for the group is if someone wanted to get into uh, digital ethnography or cultural anthropology like you have, what steps should the person take? Um, for example, I'm studying new media and wanted to combine that with teaching. What advice do you give? What programs are out there? Um, didn't know if you could talk about that. And um, programs you mean like um, graduate programs or? Yes. Yes. Okay. Um, gosh, they, they're growing so fast that it's actually really hard to track them all. And so what I would suggest is that, um, is to take a broad view of, of the whole idea of what it is that you want to do because there are pieces of, of what you might call digital ethnography scattered across many, many fields. So you could look at some of the iSchools. Um, 
these are schools that you know have often sort of transformed from library science departments into information schools. Uh, they do a lot of stuff that might be interesting to you. Um, there's also a, a lot of media studies programs that do a lot of interesting things. There's culture and communication studies. Um, all there are all these different programs, and, and literally there are hundreds now uh, that in some way connect with what I'm trying to do. And of course they're not. And then of course there's there's these anthropology programs as well. So many, many different ways to go about it. And I couldn't even begin to list them all <laughs> um, right now. Uh, but in terms of getting started, I think what you should do is just is just uh, do a lot of your own research. Um, maybe go to Google Scholar and start just searching keywords that you're interested in. And then start noting the scholars that are interesting to you. And then find out where they are. And eventually what you'll probably find is you'll be able to zero in on a program where two or three of the scholars that you find interesting happen to be at. And then that would be a good place to go to, to, to take this a step further. Are you done, Michael, or shall we take one or two more? Yeah, we go to the next uh, question. We can do one more question and then... Leanne, if I've said that right. Go ahead and press your mic button if you want to ask the question through the microphone. She's typing in question, Michael. Okay. Can you see it there? Yeah. yeah. Well, um, so she's asking about whether or not sort of the net effect of the proliferation of new media has a positive or negative impact on how we're connected. And and, and you've already implicitly noted in your um, note there some of the aspects of this, like the fact of being constantly connected. Um, and that comes about largely through um, mobile technologies. And, and, you know, so some of the social theory on this is people are recognizing that we're we're increasingly connected person to person rather than place to place. Uh, that's been a trend that's going been going on for decades now as a shift from sort of um, sort of town-based community and place-based community to networked-based um, forms of community. And then there's also the issue of uh, that we've been looking at which is how an just how anonymous we are when we are connecting. So when we connect through a screen, uh, there's a certain amount of anonymity built into that. So for example, uh, right now, our conversation is being mediated by Illuminate. And Illuminate has tried to recreate all these different aspects of being co-present with one another, like ra by raising your hand, you can raise your hand, you can grimace, you can show confusion, you can smile, you can clap, all those types of things. But we know that that's sort of a not quite fully face-to-face, uh, it doesn't have the immediacy of face-to-face -face communication. Um, now, is that good or bad? So it turns out that there are good and bad aspects of that. that there's the bad reasons are bad things are actually not that hard to find because if you look at YouTube comments, for example, this is a space where you are limited to like 500 characters. You can be you can use a pseudonym or you can be virtually completely anonymous. Um, 
the conversations are not threaded in any substantial way. So people, it creates a platform where people can express a lot of hatred, and you do see a lot of hatred on YouTube. But at the same time, those same conditions can actually create uh, a place where people can connect more deeply than they might be able to in everyday life because the uh, sort of conditions of, of uh, I, I suppose people don't have to be as concerned about how they look or, or what they're doing while they're watching a YouTube video. They can just sort of watch the YouTube video and feel, just allow themselves to feel a connection with the person on the other end. And, w and so in our studies of YouTube, we found people reporting that they were ex experiencing deeper connections on YouTube through this mediation of the webcam than they were experiencing in their everyday lives. And in fact, in some cases, feeling a stronger connection to humanity in general than they ever had in their whole life. So, so there's the positive side of it. But I, so I don't think there's any way to say that, there's, that it's all good or all bad. Uh, I think the important thing to look at is starting to explore uh, how, how things are good and how things are bad. And that's, that's what we're trying to do through our research. Michael, is that a good place to finish? Sure, we can finish there. Uh, there's a few more questions. If people want to type them in, I can try to get to them. Oh, I'm glad to keep going. I just wanted to be sensitive to your time. In fact, let's take a two-second break here and clap for Michael, since we didn't really get to do that <laughs> with the full audience. But I'm, hit, I'm hitting on the clapping hand. Okay. So some of you have accidentally hit the raised hand. So now it looks like we have eight questions, but I don't think we really do. But I'm going to give the mic to Bill. Uh, hi, Michael. Um, I'm not sure quite how to ask this, but I, I know that you put the, the what uh, that we are teaching as the fourth question. But I, I guess what I'm worried about is that with the intensive use of all of the Web 2.0 tools, most of which the students may not be familiar with, and the use of it in class and all of that, that you might lose the anthropology part of the course. Uh, how do you yeah. how do you how do you hang on to making sure that they're taking an anthropology class instead of another class from computer services? Right. <laughs> well, so the key is, and I think this kind of gets lost in the discussion when we're talking about technology and teaching. The key is that, and the reality is that the class is actually focused all around a very important anthropological question, and the technology is completely secondary. And we can go completely without technology if we if we have to, and we actually have on a number of occasions. And um, and in fact, a lot of the Web 2.0 stuff is not happening in the classroom; it's happening outside the classroom. So what happens in the classroom is is really, for me, it's all about inspiration. Like I'm trying, in a large classroom, I'm trying to inspire the students so that then they go out and they just sort of naturally start using those Web 2.0 tools just because it's the best way to learn and share information about what it is we're studying. And so what we focus on in the class is this, the core question is, how does the world work? And that's a very anthropological question, thinking about how cultures are interrelated, how culture, how cultures are integrated and how they work, how, how economics integrates with um, politics and religion and so on. These are all anthropological questions that are all in some way addressing that bigger question of how does the world work. And 
that's how we don't lose the anthropology and all this. So there really is uh, content to be had there, but that content is built up sort of from the why question, which, and the why question is, um, you know, why is the world the way it is? That's an important question to address. Um, so we're, we know what the significance of that question is. And, and then from that, all the content builds from there. And it's really important not only for the students, uh, but for me as well, so that, you know, if I'm thinking through a lecture I'm going to give, um, I have to be very aware of how it fits into the relevance of, of the bigger goals of the class. And not just thinking about, you know, this is something I learned, so they're going to learn it, or it's something that's in the canon of anthropology, and they're, therefore they're going to learn it. You have to really think about why is this important. And if it's not important, maybe it doesn't deserve to be in the canon of anthropology. Maybe we need to reconsider that canon. And so I think just showing, um, just just trying, just focusing on that relevance part uh, becomes really important. So should we go Michael, on to you, question from? We, we, we can go on to Michael. Um, I did want to ask you, it, you in a couple of places you said that you, you uh, love your students. And I thought yeah. that, that part of what you're expressing is your interest in really making sure that they are, you're providing them with material that's going to be of value to them. Yeah. Yeah, and, and so that, and the, the love part is sort of uh, thinking about it as a relationship in which you're constantly listening to them and where they're at and and you as a sort of um, it's not just that you know you're going to love them and coddle them and just like give them what they want it's that you love them and care for them and, and you're going to help them get where they need to be kind of thing and so um, and the loving part has that really strong listening component to it and so one of the things I really strive to do in my classes is really pay attention to where the students are at, listening to them and their concerns. But I think it's important to note that it's not listening um, to the surface level of what they're telling me uh, because what they might be telling me is that, you know, we don't want to take this test, or, you know, we're tired, we're exhausted, that kind of thing. Instead, I'm looking, I'm trying to listen at a deeper level, um, trying to listen for for what they really need and, and so on. So. Um, and then I think giving them uh, like full respect and and uh, and those things just creates a a rich environment that they feel um, that they're they feel a part of something and they feel like they're not just there to receive knowledge they're there to create a great learning environment with me. So okay, so Michael, Michael I've given you the mic. use it, you push down on the mic icon in the audio section, or you can type your question in, or maybe you raised your hand accidentally. We don't hear from you in a second. We'll move on to Buffy. There you go, Michael. Am I on now? There you go, Michael. Uh, yes, thank you very much. I'm, uh, I work with autism in a special school, but I was wondering, with your all this experience under your belt, and this may be out of your area of expertise, do you think that something from this course would be applicable to students on the spectrum? Uh, uh, it's something we can just maybe. You know, I think that um, I'd actually point you to a book instead of answering that question. <laughs> um, 
there's a really interesting uh, professor out there who recently wrote a book about um, media and change and autism, actually. And it's because he uh, his daughter has autism. Um, the book is by Lance Strait, S-T-R-A-T-E. Um, and I think the title is called Reflections. Uh, or it's called Echoes and Reflections is the title of it. And I, instead of answering that, I just invite you to read that. So it's been it's a very powerful and interesting book uh, that I think will address that. Buffy, I've given you the mic. Can you hear me? Yeah. You turned your mic off again, I think, or it went off. There you go. Um, what advice would you give to someone who is starting out with this model of teaching and learning? Uh, so <laughs> I think, um, gosh, what, what would be the right advice? Um, That's, uh, several things just ran through my head, um, but, and some of them are kind of repeats of what I've said earlier tonight. But um, I think just to keep a f couple things in mind as you go forward, and that is the one is is why am I doing this and why is this important? Um, keep that question in mind and always be answering that question effectively. And then secondly, um, just really focus on creating a strong relationship with your students so that they're willing to go with you. But those two things have to go together because, you know, just having a strong relationship with your students, then everything is like um, sort of lovey-dovey or whatever in the classroom, but there's no purpose. So you have to have a purpose and the connection. I think that that's what creates the great learning environment. If you can have the connection with your students and, and that significance piece, then that's that'll that's what'll make it work. Um, a couple books that might be useful that help me in thinking through things. One is called is by Neil Postman, and it's called Teaching as a Subversive Activity. And that its book is over 40 years old, but it really outlines the basic ideas that I'm talking about right now. And the other one is also an old book, um, and it's it's called The Art of Loving by Eric Fromm. And that's just a great book to be thinking about the mechanic, the, the not the mechanics, but the uh, sort of how relationships work, or how and relationships in all levels. So it's not just you know your, your relationships with your spouse or significant other, but also um, relationships with anybody. And, and I think that's a powerful book just to like read and think about how it applies. And of course, it's not about teaching, but I, I think that. It's still a very useful book to be to look at. So this hasn't happened before, Michael, but I actually have to go. So okay. <laughs> I have to call the show. I'm really sorry. Hey, let's clap again for Michael. Greatly appreciate uh, your being here and taking the time, and especially taking the extra time. Uh, thanks yeah. to the KnowledgeWorks Foundation for supporting the interview series. Up tomorrow night, Gary Putland from education.au in Australia. Coming up next month, John City Brown and David Thornburg. Our special thanks to Barbara Diamond, who stayed on and was going to help co-host tonight, but we'll 
we'll check in with Barbara another time. Thanks for coming. Thanks for making a great evening. And thanks again to you, Michael. Anything final you want to say? Is that, I think I missed that. Were you talking to me? Anything you want to say before we uh, thank oh. you and let you go? <laughs> no. No, I think I think that's it. Thanks for everybody for coming okay. out. It's a great, great group. Wonderful work, Michael. Thanks for all you're doing. Thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks. So here's how it works, everybody. I'm going to turn the recording off in just a second. In order for that recording to process, I actually have to kick you out of the room. So if you're not done chatting, feel free to, to type a little bit more. But in a few minutes, I'm going to have to ask you to ask you to exit the room, or I can actually, uh, at a certain point in time, I have to just sort of bump everybody out. Uh, Michael, you're certainly free to go. Um, we, your mic's still on, just so you know. All right.